We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus, uh, Covenant members. It's a joy to be back with you. I've been out for a couple weeks with sickness and um, have missed being with you. I'm glad to, to be back today and to, to be able to worship with you. It's, it's good to see you again. Um, hey, I, I, if you've been visiting with us for a while uh, and you're interested in taking um, next steps into membership with our church, you're interested in what that looks like to be a covenant member at our church, then we'd invite you to join us on March 5th for membership weekend. Uh, it's a Saturday morning from 8 until 5. Uh, I'll be there that morning and we'll just be talking through who Emmaus is, what we believe, uh, what it means to be a member and what that would look like to partner together for the sake of the gospel. And so we'd love to have you join us. You can sign up uh, by going to the connect table and filling out a connect card and just write membership weekend on that. You can also go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect and get connected with membership weekend there as well. So we'd invite you to do that. And then if you're a guest and this is uh, one of your first times here and you just want to connect with us, again, those two options. Connect table, come uh, ask questions, meet us, uh, fill out a card. We'd love to get in touch with you or EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. Either one of those are great options for you to take next steps with us. Hey, today's a special day for us in two ways. In a moment, um, Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam, He's officially not Pastor Sam this week, but Sam um, is going to come forward and he's going to preach his uh, final sermon for us and his farewell sermon, which was supposed to be last week when he was still a pastor. And then he woke up Monday morning and was no longer a pastor here, which is a weird feeling as a man who's pastored faithfully for years. But um, due to sickness as well, Matthew Barrett stepped in last week. Sam's preaching today. Um, and so in a moment, he's going to come do that. At the end of the service, we're going to pray for Sam and Shannon. And, and we're not commissioning them and sending them away. We're going to do that later this summer before they head to the Middle East. All right, but today what we want to do is we're going to pray for them and we're going to release them. All right, we're releasing them from, um, from the weight and the responsibility of pastoring and shepherding us. And so we're going to pray for God's blessings in this next phase as they continue to raise financial support to go to the Middle East to train pastors there. So we're looking forward to him coming in a moment. We'll pray for him in just a minute as well. But then today is also the first uh, day officially for Tyler uh, Green and Aaron Green to be here with us. Uh, Tyler, why don't you come forward, man? Let me uh, everyone see you um, and your beautiful face. Uh, this is Tyler Green. Uh, Tyler uh, officially started with us this week, and we're kind of getting him into the ropes. He is an elder candidate with us, which means he's not a pastor yet, but we're moving towards him being a pastor, and he will be overseeing liturgy for us. Um, so overseeing our worship ministry for us. He'll also be um, preaching for us some, and he'll also be doing a lot of um, pastoral and member care for us as well. And so we're excited to have him and Aaron in town. Some of you have been providing meals for them and caring for them and getting to know them already. Thank you for doing that. His family's experienced sickness in the midst of the transition, so pray for them as they um, recover and are healed. Um, but we want to pray for him and just the Lord's blessing on him as he comes in. Um, he'll get plenty of opportunity to to talk to you and for you to get to know him. But after the service, come say hi. He'll be here for both services. Uh, and then he'll be leading worship for us next Sunday and preaching for us on the 27th of February. And so looking forward to that as well. So we're going to pray for Tyler and then we're going to pray for Sam and then Sam's going to come forward and preach. Jesus, I thank you for Tyler and Aaron and I thank you for um, connecting us and bringing them here to serve us. 
Father, how um, Sam has led us so faithfully in oversight of the worship ministry, and John and Kristen and Elizabeth have so faithfully led our worship team and, and led us in worship. And Father, many of them will continue to do so in those same capacities. But Father, we're just thank you that, thankful that you are providing for our church and leaders to continue leading us forward in um, our worship and our confession and the teaching of the scriptures for us and in care of your people. Uh, Father, we feel... Um, blessed by an abundance of riches in those that you've sent us. And so thank you for them. Would you help their transition as they learn our city and learn our people and get to know um, us? And as we get to know them, would you bind our hearts and knit us together? Uh, may we um, feel uh, the, the, the uh, unity of the spirit together. And Father, we pray for Sam as he comes and preaches his farewell sermon to us. Father, with, with all the heart and emotion and desire that he has to want to give us a last word as the sheep that you have placed him over for the last several years, I pray that you would give him strength today as he does so. Sustain him. Would you open our hearts to receive your word today? Spirit, preach a better sermon even than Sam has prepared. And may we leave here encouraged and challenged and thankful. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Um, my wife is always teasing me about how I'm choosing the, the difficult passages to preach uh, here at Emmaus. And so I decided to end with one that's not so, uh, so hard to, to hear. So John chapter 10. If you haven't heard uh, the reason why we're leaving... Uh, Josh mentioned it briefly, but we're, we're leaving because uh, God has called us to the Middle East to train up uh, pastors and church leaders in the Middle East to, to be a, uh, a church planting force, if you will, uh, on the global scale. And so we're very excited about that ministry. It's obviously a bittersweet week for us. And so uh, I know that we just prayed, but I'm going to invite you to pray with me again because I need the Lord's help to make it this morning. So please pray with me. O triune God, to you we lift up our hearts, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Almighty Father, we humbly ask you to provide for our many needs this morning from your heavenly storehouses, chiefly now the need to receive your word as food for our souls. In worship, we humble our hearts before you, for we know that you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. We come now to receive your word and your wisdom. Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, guide us now into the green fields of your presence. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So let us sit like Mary at your feet and learn from you this morning. Holy Spirit, grant us eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Incline our hearts to him in reverent worship. Unite our hearts to fear the name of Christ. Be with your people and may your presence be our portion. Water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seeds sown in weakness may be raised in power. Let the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I remember the exact moment I first felt the aspiration to pastoral ministry, the pastoral office specifically. I was a Bible college student in my early 20s, and it was during a survey class covering the book of Acts, and my professor was reading through Paul's farewell discourse to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. So I casually listened to the sermon, probably half listening, until he read verse 28, which made my heart stop, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. This is what Acts 20, 28 says. Paul says this to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. At these words, my chest tightened and my breathing became labored. It was as if the finger of God was pushed between my ribs and was impressing upon me the importance of this call. And in that moment, I felt the gravity of pastoral ministry, perhaps for the very first time, come startlingly into view. I understood what a pastor is, that he is authority, he is an authority under authority, that he is a steward and a manager, caring not for, for some trifle, but caring rather for God's most prized and precious possession, his flock, which he purchased with his own blood. The pastor's is one of the most hazardous of occupations. He's charged to feed and nourish and lead and protect Christ's little lambs and Christ cares about his little lambs. It was terrifying and exhilarating because amazingly, I wanted to do it. And the weight that I felt in that classroom, however, was nothing compared to the feeling of gravity I awoke to some seven years later on April 10th, 2017 after having been examined and affirmed by pastors Josh and Ronnie and then voted in on by Emmaus as a whole, I was ordained and installed as your pastor on April 9th, my birthday, 2017. And the next day, I awoke with a profound sense of weightiness. It was palpable, almost physical. Because no longer would I someday hypothetically be expected to shepherd the flock of God, which Christ obtained with his own blood, I would now be responsible to shepherd this flock. These brothers and sisters, you all, with names and faces and burdens and sins and victories, all as unique as you are. This was the flock that Christ had entrusted to me and my fellow elders. And that fearful call to shepherd you for the past nearly five years has been one of the greatest privileges of my life. And so as I thought about what to leave you with in this final sermon that I'm preaching as your pastor, I could not think of a better place to leave you 
than in the presence of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Oh, Emmaus, there are so many things that you need to know, so many things that I want to say to you. How can an under-shepherd possibly stand behind this pulpit and give everything necessary when sinners and sufferers need to be confronted and comforted, when the hubris need to be humbled, when those who are weary need rest, when those who presume to sin so that grace may abound need to be confronted? How can we, mere men, imperfect and selfish and self-pitying and limited, how can we possibly give you everything you need? Here's how. We usher you into the presence of your good shepherd whose care for you is always and in every way perfect. So let's do that together. Let's sit at Jesus' feet together. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Listen to the words of our Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now we're jumping into the middle of a discourse in which Jesus is appealing to a shepherding analogy to describe his ministry. And before uh, he gets to this part, in verse 7, he began by likening himself to the door of a sheep pen. He is like a door in the sense that coming to him is to enter into safety and vitality. But now he shifts the metaphor and says that he's also like a shepherd. And he is the good shepherd who loves his sheep. So not only is he the place where we find rest, the door, we come to him to, to receive rest and vitality, he is also the, the one who cares for us and provides for us and protects us. He's the shepherd. And how does this good shepherd show his love for his sheep? He lays his life down for them. That is love, friends. And notice how he brings out this love. He contrasts himself as the good shepherd with hired hands. The good shepherd lays his life down to protect the sheep. He stands between the wolf and his flock. He will sacrifice his life for the safety of the sheep. The hired hand, by contrast, who doesn't care for the sheep like the good shepherd does, abandons the sheep to the wolf. He abandons the sheep to their faith, fate. Rather than sacrificing his life for their safety, for the safety of the sheep, he sacrifices the life of the sheep for his own safety. But Jesus is not like the hired hands. He is good, and it gets even better. Look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. 
Don't miss the incredible point of this word knowledge in verse 14. No. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. But this is not some mere propositional knowledge, like in the way that we know that two plus two equals four. No, Jesus says that his mutual knowledge of his sheep is like something. It's like unto something. What is it like? It is like unto the knowledge that he has for his father and that his father has for him. This is an intimate knowledge of familiarity. We call this mutual, eternal knowledge between the Father and the Son, divine beatitude or blessedness, happiness. The loving knowledge that communicates the triune God's infinite self-happiness. And Jesus says, me and my sheep have an intimacy that resembles that. (laughs) Jesus, as he gathers us into his fold, He gathers us into his fold where we participate in a creaturely way in the infinite ocean of Trinitarian love. He says, I love my sheep like that. And here in these verses, Jesus speaks about us, Emmaus. Maybe you didn't recognize yourself. You're in this text. Did you know that? Jesus is talking about you. Where does he talk about you? Look at verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews. You see, Jesus in John chapter 10 is currently ministering to the Jews in his flock. Romans 1 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so when Jesus came in the flesh, he came ministering first to the Jews to call in the lost sheep from Israel. But the boundaries of his sheepfold were always intended to expand to include Gentiles, to expand to include the nations. And this is why, um, and this expansion happens after Christ's death and resurrection. This is why Jesus refuses to meet with the Greeks that want to come and meet with Jesus in John chapter 12. So if you keep reading and John, uh, in John, into chapter 12, you'll see this little episode where some Greeks come to the disciples and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not time for me to talk to them yet. I have to be buried in the ground and then resurrected again. A seed has to die in the ground before it can bear fruit. And so Jesus tells us that he will bear the fruit of Gentile believers after he is buried and resurrected. He tells us that when he is lifted up, which in John's gospel is a double entendre, it has a double meaning. It means when he's lifted up on the cross and also when he's lifted up in glory. So he says, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. That is Jews and Gentiles. And by the way, we will watch him do this throughout the book of Acts together as a church. We will watch God call all people to himself. He does this through the disciples. The book of Acts begins with ministry to the Jews. The gospel is the salvation, power of God into salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So the the book of Acts begins with ministry to the Jews. The early church proclaims the resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem. But the book of Acts will end with Paul, not in Jerusalem, but in Rome, 
with the gospel unbounded and spreading all over like leaven making its way through a loaf of bread. That's how he calls his sheep from among the nations. He does it through the proclamation of his saints. We are ambassadors, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Christ appeals through us when we call out, be reconciled to God. When we proclaim the gospel, when we invite sinners unto salvation and when they respond, it is because they recognize in our words the voice of their good shepherd. And this is why we go. This is why we boldly proclaim the gospel. This is why my family is going, brothers and sisters. We love Kansas City. Why would we leave? Why would we move to Abu Dhabi? Because there are men and women from all over the face of this planet flooding into that region of the world. And we know, we know, because God's word tells us, we know that when we proclaim the gospel, they will recognize the voice of their good shepherd and they will respond and be brought in. And then they'll go back to their countries, oftentimes closed countries that you and I would have a very difficult time getting into, and they will be ambassadors for their good shepherd there. They will speak on behalf of Christ. And as they lift high the name of Christ, he will, through their proclamation, draw others to himself. And on this note, brothers and sisters, this note of drawing, I invite you to marvel with me at the grace of our good shepherd to call out to us and to woo us with his voice. It's worth mentioning that the same word that we translate here as good, the Greek word that we translate as good, is also translated as beautiful, kalos, good or beautiful. So we could translate this, I am the beautiful shepherd. And honestly, that translation makes just as much sense to me. <laughs> Did we not respond to our beautiful shepherd when he called out to us? Do we not respond as he continues to call out to us now? through sermons and songs and scripture and prayer and conversation, his sheep hear his voice and they recognize the goodness and beauty therein and it is irresistible. They cannot resist the beauty of his call. And those who, who heed this invitation for the first time, who come to Christ for the first time, recognize the loveliness of his call. They can't resist it. They think, this is the voice I have been waiting for all my life to hear. I didn't realize it. I thought I was searching for something else, but this is what I've been searching for. Augustine describes this experience like this. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into the lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Something, something clicks for Christ's sheep, and we hear his words differently. 
Maybe words that we hear a hundred times before we hear them differently. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No longer sounds like distant words spoken in the third person. No longer is it a man named Jesus spoke these words somewhere to some people. It is rather you, Jesus, speak these words to me. This is my invitation. He calls to his sheep and his sheep respond. And think about the security of this passage. All of this, all of this calling and responding is in accord with the father's love, the son's mission to redeem a people for himself, and Christ's authority to willingly lay down his life and take it up again. Whose call, whose invitation can be more trustworthy than he who has authority over life and death itself? That means that we can trust him when he calls out to us. Let's read on verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The words, works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep, among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and, they, and I know them, and they follow me. Their persistent belief, according to Christ, is not due to a lack of information or reason to believe. Now, a lack of information is the reason for some unbelief. And that's why we send out missionaries to go to frontier, uh, as, as frontier missionaries to go to unreached places. But that's not the case for these Jews that Jesus is talking to here. He tells them that he's told them plain enough with his own words, and he has shown them plain enough with his actions who he is. So Jesus says to these Jews who persist in their unbelief, he says that their unbelief is not owing to a lack of information or a lack of good reason. They may have reasons for not believing in Jesus, but none of them are good reasons. What is their reason? What is the reason? Their unbelief, as shocking and as unsettling as it is for many of us to hear, is owing to the fact that they are not in Jesus's fold. They don't come to him when he calls because he is not their good shepherd. Let me say it even more emphatically. It's not the case that they aren't sheep because they didn't respond. It's rather the case that they didn't respond because they aren't his sheep. That's what he says. Now, does this mean that we should conclude if someone that we share the gospel with doesn't respond, that that simply means that they aren't in the fold and we should just forsake them and just say, okay, I guess they're not part of Christ's sheep fold. I'm done preaching the gospel to them. Certainly not. Certainly not. Who would be so hubris as to think he knows from his own finite and limited vantage point who is a lost sheep in need of more pleading and who is no sheep at all? That's not our call, friends. 
God's word tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things revealed belong to us and to our children. So we give off the aroma of Christ wherever we go. 2 Corinthians chapter two tells us. We give off that aroma wherever we go and we let the Lord determine what he does through our proclamation. Some will receive that aroma as a sweet fragrance and some will receive it as a stench, but that's not up to us to decide. We just keep proclaiming, keep preaching. We keep giving the the good shepherd the sound of our voice so that he can call out and we pray for the lost, that they would respond. How many of us, how many of us who responded to such a call did so after the thousandth time, brothers and sisters? So we keep proclaiming the gospel of God, comforted with the assurance that Christ's sheep will respond. Verse 28. I give them, my sheep, that is, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. (laughs) The son, Jesus, our good shepherd, gives eternal life. That's his gift. Here you go, eternal life. How can he do that? How can he give eternal life? How can he give us this kind of promise where he will sovereignly keep us safe, give us eternal life that cannot be undermined or taken away? How? Because he is the Lord of life. It is within his authority because his authority is tied to his nature. His authority is connected to his nature, the nature that he shares with the Father. The authority to give eternal life and to keep all those to whom he gives this life is a prerogative of the divine nature that he shares with the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. That's what gives me the authority to give eternal life such that it can never be snatched out of those to whom I give it. With that one divine nature comes one divine will and authority. And so what the son has and what the father gives cannot be taken away, cannot be interrupted. He gives his sheep eternal life. Now I wanna ask, what does this eternal life mean right now? What does it feel like? It means intimacy with the God of the universe. That is available to us with eternal life to experience the eternal life the good shepherd gives is to be able to pray Psalm 23 with David, which says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Shall not want, meaning I will lack nothing that I need. He will provide for me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, 
Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. (laughs) Friends, are we good stewards with this gift of eternal life? He's given it to us. Do we enjoy it? That's what you do with gifts. You enjoy them. That's how you honor the giver. You enjoy the gift. So on that note, let me leave you with three pastoral charges, two to Emmaus and one to Emmaus's pastors. First pastoral charge is this. Emmaus, I charge you in the presence of God, in the name of Jesus, stoke the flames of wonder at the fact that you belong to Christ's fold. Stoke the flames of wonder at the fact that you belong to Christ's fold. Christian, guess what? You are still a Christian. That's incredible. You woke up this morning still believing. Do not take that for granted. That is a miracle. Stoke the flames of wonder at this fact. Be amazed and humbled. How? How do we do that? Well, friends, I'm convinced that we all too seldom think about the forgiveness of our sins as incredible. I am convinced that we all too seldom think of it as incredible. The good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep. Why are we not struck by that fact every moment? We're not driven to obedience with gratitude. Is it not because we think too little of God and therefore too little of our sin? If we think of our sin as a small matter, then God's grace manifested in the forgiveness of our sins will also be a small matter. And our joy will be hampered. Which means, as counterintuitive as it sounds, coming to grips to a greater degree of the severity of your sin and the greater grace of Christ to cover it is actually your path to joy. How do you get joy? Come to greater degree of the depth of your sin and be amazed at the greater grace of Christ to forgive your sin. So, standing from a place of security in Christ on the mountaintop of grace and security and safety, if you will, it's good from time to time to peer over the edge and see, look down into the valley of your own sin from which you came. It's good to ask for God's eyes to see your sin the way that he sees your sin. Not graded on a curve, but rather as it were, naked, uncovered. So don't hasten to qualify or dress up or excuse it. Let it be in your imagination as ugly as it really is. Look at it in the light of the overwhelming holiness of God and let his burning presence melt away all the excuses and the minimizations. Look at your selfishness and your narcissism head on and don't dress it up with uh, uh, soft language, whatever it is, self-care or whatever it is that you're using to minimize your selfishness. Call it what it is. Look at the bitterness that you're holding on to and don't bring but they excuses to the floor. Don't you see how woefully insufficient such excuses are before a holy God? Look at that smug judgmentalism in your heart. Don't ignore that resentment you feel as you throb with envy looking on others' circumstances. 
Don't ignore that resentment you feel towards God. Stare at the petty tantrum that looks like outbursts of anger at your kids or your spouse. Don't dismiss it. Don't minimize it with pathetic excuses of being exhausted or having your patience tried or being provoked. Is God satisfied with such excuses? Don't turn a blind eye from your manipulation, your feeling sorry for yourself, your lustful indulgences, your worship of your own desires. Let all of the qualifications drift away into the background and see your sins the way that God sees them. And then, and only then, can we rightly be awestruck by the fact that our good shepherd laid his life down for our forgiveness? C.S. Lewis captures this so well in his children's fantasy novels, The Chronicles of Narnia. One of the books, my favorite one in the series, The Silver Chair, the protagonist is a girl named Jill Pohl, and she's sent by Aslan, the Christ figure of these books, on a quest, and without giving too much of the story away, She fails in many of the tasks that she is given. She completes this quest, but not without a lot of sinning and failing along the way. And at the end of the book, she sees Aslan again, and here's what happens. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill forgot about almost everything and remembered only how she had made Eustace fall over the cliff and how she had helped to muff nearly all the signs and about all the snappings and quirlings and sins. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she could not speak. Then the lion drew them towards him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue and said, Think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I have sent you into Narnia. The consolation of Aslan is not minimized by Jill's awareness of her sin. Seeing her sin clearly in the light of Aslan's holiness makes his forgiveness infinitely more meaningful. So consider, who did Christ die for? Did he die for adorable and endearing little sweethearts? No, he died for sinners, ugly and deformed by sin and depravity, grotesquely disfigured in our souls by our own sin-sick hearts, ever refusing the waters of life, preferring instead to drink from muddy and broken cisterns of sin, ever refusing the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God, preferring instead the salt water of self-destruction and the never-satisfying sinful gratification, ever refusing to dine with Lady Wisdom, to receive food and wine and bread and preferring instead stolen bread and water that turns the stomach. Does that look like a good trade-off to you? The life of the perfect, sinless, holy, innocent, lovely and admirable son of God in exchange for traitors and cheaters and rebels and ingrates and liars. Friends, this is the scandal of the forgiveness of our sins. Christ was not compelled to lay his life down for you because of your beauty. You had none. It's rather the exact opposite. It's not our intrinsic worth that is seen in the gospel as if God simply could not be happy until we were restored to him in salvation. It's rather 
It's not the case that Christ was compelled to pay such a price because we were so worthy, but rather we are now made worthy because of the infinite price he paid to purchase us. For while we were still weak, says Paul in Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness, forgiveness. It's not a small thing. It's everything. We were unlovely and are made lovely by his love. So let us not be content with minimal amazement of our salvation, brothers and sisters. Let us be absolutely dumbfounded and struck with gratitude at so great a salvation that we have been given by Christ. Stoke the flames of wonder at the fact that you belong in this sheepfold. Charge number two, this one's a lot shorter, don't worry. I charge you, Emmaus, keep listening to the voice of your good shepherd. Bask in his presence graze in his pasture, sit at his feet. Do this in prayer. Do this together and on your own. Come week after week into the assembly of the saints. Keep day by day to his word. Friends, he continues to call out to his sheep and his sheep love his voice. He cares for you, brothers and sisters. So continue to sit at his feet and listen to his word. Drink and be refreshed by his still waters. And on this note, let me remind you that there is no one like Jesus. Your pastors have failed you and they will continue to fail you. Brothers and sisters, there are many things that I would do over again if I could and for all of the ways that I have personally failed to reflect the heart of this good shepherd to you, I am sorry. But do not let the imperfections of your pastors, please, do not let the imperfections of your pastors tempt you to think that your good shepherd is hampered by sin like we are. He is not. He's not. You can trust him entirely. Listen to these breathtaking words from the Puritan pastor, John Owen. A little faith gives you a whole Christ. That's amazing. A little faith gives you a whole Christ. You who have but a weak faith have yet a strong Christ so that all the world, so that though all the world should set itself against your little faith, it should not prevail. Sin cannot do it. Satan cannot do it. Hell cannot do it. Though you take but a weak and faint hold on Christ, he takes a sure, strong, and unconquerable hold on you. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he wonderful? Don't you want to spend more time with him? So that's your charge. Keep listening to the voice of your good shepherd, friends. Third and finally, pastors pastors. Keep reflecting the heart of our good shepherd to this people. Keep reflecting the heart of our good shepherd to this people. Don't be a hired hand, brothers and sisters. Brothers, not sisters. 
Don't despise the privilege of laying your life down for their safety. Resist the temptation to turn a blind eye or leave them on their own when the going gets tough. Those moments, those moments when we are most tempted to withdraw, those moments are where the grace of Christ is most promised to us in fresh ways. Brothers, Christ loves this church and he has given you to them. He's given you to them as gifts. You may think that others are better equipped for it, but he doesn't. He has given you to this church. He intends to showcase, showcase his heart to them through you. The Spirit has placed you as stewards over this flock which Christ purchased with his own blood. So as I leave this congregation and this elder team, I leave this wonderful flock into your care. The burden that we have joyfully bore together, I now leave with you entirely. And I ask you, I beg you, please keep loving them. And brothers, when you are at a loss of what to do or where to guide them, remember that wherever else you lead them, you are to lead them into the care of their and your good shepherd. He is never at a loss. He is never wrong with his handling of his flock. So keep leading them, keep ushering them into his presence. If you do nothing else, brothers, you will please your heavenly father by doing that. And on that note, brothers, you yourselves, keep, keep coming to him. You are sheep before you are shepherds. You are sheep before, you're a sheep before you're a shepherd. And your good shepherd loves you not merely because of how you care for his flock, but primarily because you are his sheep. And he laid his life down for you. He loves you. So feed on the gospel yourself first and then lead this precious flock into the green pastures of his presence. Brothers, thank you. Thank you for pastoring me and my family. Thank you for letting me pastor you and yours. Thank you for carrying the joyful burden of pastoral ministry with me. And Emmaus, thank you for letting me be your pastor. My wife and I came here just over seven years ago feeling spiritually lonely and exhausted and in grave need of community. And you provided that for us in immeasurable ways. And then you brought me on as a pastor, a young man who had so much to learn. And you were patient with me as I learned how to be a faithful pastor here, oftentimes by trial and error. <laughs> and you were very patient. I can never express my love or gratitude enough. Let me lead you in communion one last time. As always, we like to mention that this meal is for Christians. This meal of communion is for Christians. It is for the body of Christ. Therefore, if you are not a Christian, you're not invited to take this meal. You're invited to watch and to pray as the believers stand and take this meal. And might I plead with you in closing, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, please become one. <laughs> please join this body of Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone. Listen to this invitation. 
from the Puritan pastor John Bunyan. And you can receive this as a genuine invitation from your good shepherd to you. This is what John Bunyan writes. Who may have this life, this eternal life that we've been talking about? Who may have this life? I answer, poor, helpless, miserable sinners. (laughs) Particularly, such that are willing to have it. He that thirsteth for it. He that is weary of his sins. He that is poor and needy. He that followeth after him and crieth for life. Upon what terms? May he have this life freely. Sinner, dost thou hear? Thou mayest have it freely. Let him take the water of life freely, freely without money or without price. Sinner, art thou thirsty? Art thou weary? Art thou willing? Come then and regard not your stuff for all the good that is in Christ is offered to the coming sinner without money and without price. He has life to give away to such as want it, and that hath not a penny to purchase it, and he will give it freely. Oh, what a blessed condition is the coming sinner in. So come, friends. Come in faith and prayer and be received by Jesus Christ. If you will let him, he will take your filthy robes of sin and defilement, and he will replace them with his own spotless robes of righteousness. All you need is your need. So come to him with the empty hands of faith and he will usher you into his fold. Does that sound good? Does that sound desirable? Do you long to be in his sheepfold? If so, might I suggest that you are hearing the voice of your good shepherd. So heed him, respond in faith, ask someone here what it looks like if you're interested in becoming a Christian. We want to pray for you. We want to answer your questions. So do not take this bread and this juice if you are not a Christian. Instead, take Jesus and know that if you want Jesus, you may have him. Emmaus, our good shepherd feeds us. He nourishes us. He provides for us. And by his spirit, he communes with us and nourishes our faith here at this table with this meal. He has set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. I know it looks like the hospitality team has, but don't be deceived. Jesus has set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. His rod and his staff protects us. He leads us to fields of green and still waters. So come to this table with faith in him. Come to this table with gratitude to receive the bread, an emblem of his broken body for us, and this cup, an emblem of this shed blood for us as a provision from his hand to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have fed us with your word. Now, please feed us with this holy meal. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you, You are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, to partake of this meal in communion with our good shepherd that we may continually dwell in him to the glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Emmaus, I love you. Please come and eat and drink and be grateful. Come and take this meal with me. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. 
For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.